Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. So my name's Adrian. I am from Arizona. So I'm a licensed counselor in Arizona. Um, there is no national accreditation yet, so I throw that out there as that. I'm only speaking as a counselor licensed from the state of Arizona. I'm actually not licensed to practice in Illinois. Um, that's just actually become a big mess during the pandemic, right? Because now that we do telehealth, we should just be able to work in any state possible, So, but we can't. Um, I've been doing that for 17 years. Um, I got a master's from Denver Seminary 19 years ago um, in counseling and jumped in working with children and families. And so that's what I've been doing for 17 years while starting a family Um, I'm actually a pastor's wife. I've been married for 23 years. I think he's been a pastor for like almost 22 of it. So I, I bring that up because I feel like I've lived in this clinical world for a very significant period of my time and worked in it, but I've always been straddling this world of being biblical, being biblically based, raising a family with a pastor, and then seeing just kind of... I felt like I didn't fit in both worlds. I felt like I was, I was more comfortable, um, I was better equipped, I was listened to more in the clinical world. And so like Melissa said, we met um, at seminary at Northern, so why would a therapist who's been doing it for 17 years decide to go get more schooling? I just had a lot of free time. I think I got tired of living in these two worlds where I felt like they should intersect a little bit more and I didn't know how to do it. I was talking with counselors and clients about boundaries and emotions and then watching pastors and I'd be like, oh, they kind of need some of this work too. But I'm not a professional over there. I was seen as a professional over here. And some people just really wanted to keep me in that box over there. And so part of the, the personal struggle and challenge of going back to seminary was to figure out how can I help people in both realms a little bit better. And so I'm excited to be here to be talking to you all about this because I would say in the last five or six months um, has been the challenge of now I'm really trying to do this as a counselor and also as someone who just feels encouraged and empowered to also preach about some of these clinical realms of our lives and how we are embodied beings And we've left a lot of that out of our spiritual teaching of like, I've got this body, I'm walking around with it, and I really don't understand it or trust it, but I don't know how to keep bringing them both together. So that's kind of my long intro of why I've jumped in and tried to do both of these and do them well. But now I'm just really excited and passionate about bringing this stuff, information to people, because I think our bodies matter. I think our minds matter. I think our emotions matter. I think our mental health matters. Um, So... Let me pray first, and then we will get jumped into why our emotions matter. Father, Son, and Spirit, um, I just want to give this time to you. Thank you for encouraging and challenging me in this way um, to do this, but thank you for encouraging and challenging everyone who decided to walk in the door and show up today to hear about emotions. Um, I give this time and space over to you because as we talk about emotions and we talk about our bodies, it can be rather jolting. It can be um, triggering at times. So Lord, I just pray for the safety of this, um, this talk, the safety of this room, the safety of this event, and the safety that your spirit brings to us as we do this. I pray for um, clarity. Um, I pray for helpful understanding and that if something is challenging, Lord, that um, we'll be able to speak openly and honestly about that. In your name we pray, amen. 
So should our emotions matter? I believe that we can be deeply emotional and deeply obedient to the scripture. And that's something that a lot of us probably haven't thought about. Do we see emotions, though, as something that help us or something that actually hinder us? Um, it probably matters which emotions I'm talking about, right? So we probably have got good emotions and bad emotions. So it's sometimes helpful to know how do we even categorize them? So if emotions can be helpful or hindering, maybe it's when I'm talking about positive emotions or negative emotions. See, I've already listed two categories. I hear people say good and I hear people say bad. I hear people say positive and negative. I hear people say sinful and not sinful. Are some of our emotions actually sinful to feel? Right or wrong? So I actually don't like any of those categories, and I'll let you know which categories I put them in later. So back to the original statement, though, I believe we can be deeply emotional and deeply obedient to Christ and the scriptures. So we're going to look at three things today. I'm going to take you through three major categories. The first one is we're actually going to look at some of the emotions that Jesus experienced. Because of time, I actually only delve into two, but there are so many more that we could look at. The second thing we're going to talk about is the myths that many of us have grown up thinking about emotions. We're just going to hit them head on. And the third is we're going to talk about why our emotions actually matter. So first, so Jesus did have emotions. I am going to read to you all Luke 10, 21. So it says, at that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. So I don't like to just jump into scripture because right now we have no idea what he was talking about or where he's actually at. All we know is that Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit said these things. So in this section, Luke chapter 10 Jesus had just sent out 72 disciples. So like Melissa brought up today, there are the 12 disciples, but his ministry grew. So in Luke, there's a mission of 72 people. He sends them out. They go out in pairs. Their mission was to gather more, but also just to share the gospel message. So these 72 have just returned, and they're overwhelmed with the good news that they bring. They tell Jesus, even the demons submit to us in your name. Jesus replies that he has seen these things, and they should not rejoice in the Spirit's submission, but that their names are written in heaven. These people know him. These people now know the Father. So that is what causes Jesus to be happy. And I love what it says in the scripture, full of joy. When I'm working with children or young adults, I do a lot of emotional education and emotional awareness. And I'll have like these little emotion cards and they'll have emotions written on them. And what I ask them to do is I ask them to describe the emotion as if I've never felt it and then to tell me a time when they felt it. Now, it is really, I shouldn't use the word funny. It's really entertaining to watch people struggle through trying to explain emotions. Think about it. If you were explaining it to someone who's never felt the emotion, we often use a lot of emotion words to describe our emotions. Or we also then might revert to describing how it feels in our body. I love, and I didn't know it until I actually read this verse, to think Jesus, in the scripture, gave us the definition, I love it, for being happy. He was full of joy. So this is what causes Jesus' joy. He's happy. In fact, it's the cause of continuous joy, because the writer of Luke uses what is called a present imperative, 
one of the adverbs written in Greek, to make the point of joy. So it's continuous, everlasting joy. So we see that Jesus has an emotion. We get to experience it. Jesus was happy. Another emotion, sad. So what usually gets brought up when people want to talk about Jesus being sad and Jesus crying is when Jesus weeps over the loss of his friend Lazarus. We're going to look at a different time when Jesus was actually sad. So it's Luke 19:41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on ground side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So as Jesus approached the city, Jerusalem, he sees it and he weeps over it. This section of scripture in Luke is called the triumphal entry. So this is when Jesus enters Jerusalem He's on the donkey. There's a lot wrapped up in this. So let's look at some of the smaller pieces. We know that Jesus is entering Jerusalem as the king of kings and lord of lords. But in the Roman world where he is entering Jerusalem, the Roman world which did occupy Jerusalem, Caesar is lord. And so first we should look at, there's a significant difference between how a Roman king or Roman general or Roman Caesar would enter a town versus how Jesus entered. When I think about this, I always think of Aladdin entering Akrabar. I think I got that right. And he's Prince Ali Ababwa. I mean, like, think about how he had to enter the town. That would be like a Roman Caesar entering Jerusalem. Jesus enters on the back of a donkey, looks at what he's entering, and he cries. Jesus enters in a way that explains the true nature of kingship. He is a humble servant. And we get to see a glimpse of his heart in this story. He knows judgment is coming, his judgment. He is going to be rejected. The divine king will be rejected while human kings will be continued to be worshipped. Israel's time is running out. So what does he feel? He is sad. He is broken. Jesus weeps. He knows what lies ahead for him, but he also knows what lies ahead for us. So the nation is about to make a dreadful choice that will have consequences for everyone. Jesus describes the day as one that would bring us peace, but that opportunity has been missed. The whole narrative asks Jesus' readers to choose sides. So again, Jesus weeps over the knowledge that he has and over the decisions that many will make. So the reason I picked those two emotions is because the category that I like to put emotions into is comfortable and uncomfortable. There aren't right emotions. There aren't wrong emotions. I don't think there's positive, and I don't think there's negative, and I definitely don't think there's sinful and unsinful emotions. We have comfortable emotions because we like feeling them. They feel okay in our body. We enjoy them, and then we have uncomfortable emotions. We don't like feeling them. They make us feel uncomfortable. They leave an impression on us. We have to figure out how to manage it. And so what I did was I just wanted to point out one of Jesus' comfortable emotions. One of the things we would put in the comfortable box would be experiencing happiness, and then the uncomfortable one would be experiencing sadness. So before we move into the second section, the myth of emotions, I actually want to define the word emotion for you. So... 
First definition is a strong feeling derived from one's circumstances, mood, or relationships with others. Two, a a conscious mental reaction, such as anger or fear, subjectively experienced as strong feeling, usually directed toward a specific object and typically accompanied by physiological and behavioral changes in the body. Okay? Yeah, I mean, it's right, but that's just a lot. Three, a state of feeling, okay? So when I was looking up definitions of emotion, this is also what I found. There is currently no scientific consensus on a definition of emotion. So not only are they complicated, and we don't really ever unpack them to fully understand them, the scientific community can't even agree and come to a consensus on how we actually define them. Because think about it. It's, we're talking about something that is embodied and withheld in my body, and it's not withheld in yours, and not, we all feel it and experience it differently. So even a definition is hard to come by. So let's look at some of the myths that people are taught, shown, and have learned about emotion. First myth, don't trust your emotions. They lead you astray. They are unreliable. They cannot be trusted. So we often feel on some level that it's a sign of weakness to give in to your feelings. We should appear calm and level-headed at all times. So that statement implies then that when I'm feeling strong emotions, I am no longer calm and level-headed. You actually should always trust your emotions because they're not right or wrong. Emotions just are. They are. When something happens, you have an emotion. It is what you do with the emotion that cannot always be trusted. But to not trust the feeling like they're lying to you, it's like having an experience of a friend choosing to not be in relationship with me. I feel sad. And then me telling my body, nope, that is a lie. I am not sad. I shouldn't be. I cannot trust this emotion. Time to move on. That feeling is not lying to me. My body is literally communicating to me, nope, this really hurts. This makes you sad. Our feelings are what are happening inside of us, and we should be aware of them and know what's going on. We can trust our emotions because they are what is just happening inside of us. We should trust them because they're often telling us something. Our heart works with our mind. Our feelings help us with thinking. So if I see someone as a threat, someone is making me uneasy and I feel afraid, I should learn to trust that fear. Now I have to act on that fear. Do I need to hightail it out of the situation to like literally protect myself? Do I need to stand my ground and protect myself? See, emotions just are. They are how we were responding internally to the external situation around us. It's how we respond externally that cannot always be trusted. The way I like to explain the way it's trying to get aware, make us aware of inside our bodies is I used to say it's a red flag system. Now I've cut out the word red because I think when we think of red flag, it's like a high alert, bad situation. I now just try to describe it as a flag system. When we experience something in our body and we have an emotion, that emotion is a flag system. It's just saying, hey, Adrian, I want you to pay attention to what's going on in this moment because you're having a feeling about it. And it could be a great feeling. I could be in a conversation with someone and I love what we're talking about and I love what we're experiencing. And so I feel that happiness. I feel full of joy. And all your body is trying to do is to say like, hey, you really like hanging out with this person. 
you really like having this conversation. For me to not listen to it would just be to miss that my body's trying to let me know you're enjoying, you're comfortable with what's going on. And so our body does the same exact thing, the flag system of you don't enjoy talking to this person. They make you really uncomfortable. Your body's trying to get you aware of what's going on. I'm in a situation where I'm terrified or scared. I have to listen to that flag system of my body because sometimes it's a threat to my survival. Our emotions are just flag systems trying to get us to pay attention to what is going on around us. Second, second myth, we should not show bad or negative emotions. Again, there are not good or bad emotions. There are not holy or sinful emotions. There are comfortable and uncomfortable emotions. So what this statement is actually implying is that we should withhold and contain and not share our uncomfortable emotions. I guess we're supposed to just have those on our own. We're supposed to feel those on our own. We're supposed to experience them on our own. The world does not want to know that we're experiencing these things. Emotions can be seen as sinful and selfish desires. So being self-aware is different than being selfish. Can I be self-aware of me and not be selfish? Completely. Completely, but it does mean that I at times may have to be more aware of myself than you. I may need to say no to something you are asking because in my self-awareness, I'm realizing that I'm uncomfortable with your request or I'm realizing that I already have too much on my plate or I'm realizing I feel overwhelmed at your request or I'm realizing you put me in a position where I can never say no. So my self-awareness doesn't lead me to be selfish. My self-awareness just makes me more aware of myself. And we like to move away from bad emotions. So let me say that with a more correct word. We like to move away from uncomfortable emotions, don't we? We do. It's, we can't deny it. But we shouldn't always. And here's my argument. For example, when we turn towards something new, we are turning away from something old. Okay, my example of this is when I graduated high school. So what am I turning towards? I'm turning towards life after 18 years old. I'm leaving high school. But what am I turning away from? High school, friends, living at home with my mom and dad. And so for me, I bring this up because I remember when I graduated high school and I moved out and I moved into a dorm, I felt like I was the only one uncomfortable. Like I felt like I was the only one who was like, is anyone sad about what we're missing out, leaving? Or, does anyone feel sadness about moving out of your mom? And no one talked about it. I just kept it all to myself. Because what we do is we want people to focus on the new that they're turning to, and we don't want them to focus on the old. Why? Because they're having hard, complicated, uncomfortable feelings. And when we turn towards something new, people have great motives. But everyone wants you to often be happy. Oh, it's a happy time. But some of us feel sad. And like I said, we won't share it or talk to anyone. And so you think you're the only one feeling it. But saying hello to something new means saying goodbye to something else. When you decide to have children, you are turning away from the single life that actually was wonderful. I mean, the not single life. If you're choosing to have children, you're turning away from the, I get to think about myself all the time and make decisions about myself. And people are like, don't focus on that. You're having a kid. When you turn away from singleness and you turn towards marriage. Again, all of these things where we just want people to focus on what they're turning towards and we're asking them to never focus on what they're turning away from. They're turning away from what they've known. 
So what we have been comfortable with, even if we hated it, was known. All change is hard, even when it's something we want or something we're looking forward to. I mean, think of all the examples I just gave. Often they're our choice. I chose to get married. I chose to go to college. I chose to have children. And so we're really like, so don't have those uncomfortable feelings. This isn't often thought of or discussed because if we get sad or down, we're often told, why are you focusing on what you're leaving? You should focus on what's coming. It's so exciting. And often this is said to be kind and helpful, but see how unhelpful it can be if you're trying to figure out what you feel and why. And oftentimes when we find ourselves saying those unhelpful things or we're having those unhelpful things said to us, it's because someone doesn't know how to handle our uncomfortable feelings and it makes them uncomfortable. So they just want us to focus on what's so much more comfortable. Third and final myth, it happens of course to be my favorite one. Women are more emotional than men. So, because everyone just thought this was so true for so long, it has been scientifically researched and studied many times. Guess what the conclusion is? This cannot be, it's not scientifically true. So women are not more emotional than men. So do you know, scientists have actually tried to study this and measure it, and it cannot be proven. What this is actually about is about culture and socialization. Women, as we grow up, we are told and shown that we can be emotional because we want them to be kind and compassionate and we want them to be nurturers because they're going to be raising the next generation. So think about when you see little girls, they have babies, they're playing in their play kitchen, their baby's sad. We're like, oh, is your baby sad? Oh, is your baby crying? We're letting them know like, all of, oh, are you sad? Comfort the baby. It's socialization and culture in that we want, we really want women to be nurturers. We want them to be more empathetic. We want them to be more in touch with their feelings. So unfortunately, men on the other hand are actually shown and told not to cry. And the emotion that we want them to feel more often than not is anger. And anger is more acceptable because we want them to grow up and be strong men who can take care of themselves and take care of their family. So when you're like, what? You have to defend yourself? You have to go fight off that? You have to go, oh, go be strong. We're actually socializing them and teaching them that anger is an appropriate emotion that we want in a man because it means that they're going to be able to defend, defend themselves, defend their family, stand up for what is right. So they just, a lot of men learn the only anger that they actually know how to express very well on the outside is anger. And it might not be towards the person that they're with or the person they're in relationship with, but it could just be anger about life, anger about the situation, or I was hurt and so I'm showing you this by being angry. So your emotions are not your problem. What you do with them can become the problem. That is why they need to be addressed, they need to be understood, and they need to be discipled. Discipling emotions is not white-knuckling through situations and learning to be okay when it makes you uncomfortable. It's not putting on a happy face. And this is what I call the emotional cover-up, talking about a hard situation and putting a positive spin on it. It's all going to be okay. God has a plan. It all works out in the end. Now hear me, those things are not wrong. I believe in the end that God is going to restore and make all 
all things new. He has a plan. Romans 8 defines it and describes it, tells us God is going to do something with this mess. But oftentimes there is a motive in this, like I said, to move away from the uncomfortable emotions. We're trying to actually just get them to move towards something that feels more comfortable for us. We are uncomfortable with their hurt. We are uncomfortable with their pain. We are uncomfortable that they're grieving. They're still grieving. They still feel that loss. We want them to move on. So the third section is then why do our emotions matter? We aren't fully human without our emotions. We are talking about being embodied people. We are human. That is good. That is how we were designed. That is what God wants for us. We aren't fully human without our emotions. So emotions are a part of God's good creation. So we need to recognize that emotions play a pivotal role in making smart decisions. Emotions are involved in our connection with others and emotions help us take care of our minds and our bodies. This, those three, that is why emotions matter. So first, emotions play a pivotal role in decision-making. Did you know that EQ, emotional intelligence, is actually a better predictor of success in life than traditional intelligence measures like IQ tests? IQ tests are not bad. They, they, they're not measuring what we really want to be measuring in people anymore. I mean, how often do you guys hear of IQ tests now? I, also, I don't hear of them being given in schools much anymore. Um, so what is emotional intelligence? All right, here is a very lengthy definition. Emotional intelligence is the ability to observe all the sensations in your body, interpret your experience of them as a feeling, and use that information to act productively in the moment. Yes, this is what I want to do. So it's made up of three things. Emotional intelligence is the ability to observe all the sensations in your body. You're like, I stop right there. I can't do it. I know it's a lot. Second, interpret your experience of them as a feeling. So you have to learn how to label the experiences that you are interpreting in your body as a feeling. And then third, use that information to act productively in the moment, knowing how to proceed. I become self-aware. I interpret. Now I know how to go forward. So first, self-awareness. We need to have the ability and grow in the ability to acknowledge what is going on in my body. We have to pay attention then to what is going on inside of our body. We have to ask ourselves questions. We need to be aware. We can't tune this out. We'll talk about this more in a little bit, but this step is very stunted for a lot of people. We pick up bad coping skills like cutting, binge eating, eating disorders, obsessive actions, Netflix binge watching, scrolling too much, to actually move away from this step. All of those things are actually a movement and a step to take us and keep us out of our bodies and not being aware of what's going on. So second is interpretation. Interpretation is the ability to categorize a unique mix of sensations as a specific type of feeling. So first, we have to actually figure out, do I know any feeling words? When I ask people this, sometimes I just get happy and sad, mad, angry. That's it, right? There's 308 emotions, technically. 
because there's a feeling wheel that I keep in my office. Sometimes when I'm like, just tell me what you feel, look at the feeling wheel, find a feeling. It's 308 emotions. So for example, if I have to interpret and categorize a unique mix of body sensations that are taking place in my body, this is me, and it's talking about me. I've learned that when my shoulders are up around my ears and my back hurts, and I usually have a headache at this point, that I'm stressed. And it usually means I've been stressed for a while, maybe a day, maybe two days, maybe three days, and I've just not been paying attention to my body. I haven't been figuring out how to relax my shoulders. So what is happening is that my body is literally trying to send me little signals all throughout the day to let me know what I'm feeling. It's like, Adrian, you're tense. Adrian, your shoulders are tight. Adrian, you're nervous. Adrian, there's too much on your plate. And I just keep ignoring it, right? But does my body ignore it? My mind is ignoring it, like, I don't have time, I don't have time, I don't have time. But your body's like, ooh. And then in like four days, I'm like, migraine. Before I come up here to talk, every single time I do this, I love doing this. See, now I'm here, I'm fine, I'm talking. Everything's okay. But before I come up here, I get nervous. My stomach gets a little upset. This is my body just giving me little signs that it makes me nervous. I'm just interpreting the signals that it gives me. I get anxiety still about speaking in front of people. Now, all of our feelings are on a spectrum, though. I can feel good over here. Let's just say that's a good feeling, comfortable feeling, and I can feel bad or uncomfortable over here. But it becomes helpful to become more specific in this. So as we start to become more self-aware, our interpretation skills also grow. So, okay, I feel bad right now. I'm on the uncomfortable side of the spectrum. Why am I feeling bad? Oh, Oh, I'm kind of sad about that phone conversation that I had. Okay, so it's growing on my spectrum of getting more specific in my interpretation. Okay, so I went from bad and uncomfortable to, oh, it made me sad. Okay, what about sad? Oh, I feel like the conversation, they really didn't listen to what I was trying to say. Oh, I felt overlooked and ignored. I mean, think about how specific that just got. I'm feeling uncomfortable. I don't like, I didn't like it. Oh, I'm... I'm sad. It, it was a sad feeling. What was I sad about? Yeah, they didn't listen to me. So what am I feeling? I'm feeling ignored. I'm feeling overlooked. That just got very specific. That's our interpretation skills. But they have to start somewhere, and they usually start on the spec at each end. Is it a good feeling? Is it a bad feeling in my body? So am I feeling comfortable or am I feeling uncomfortable? And then you just get more specific. It's hard. Third is knowing how to proceed. Okay, so the first step is I'm interpreting the sensations in my body. Second step is I'm labeling them as an actual feeling. And the third is knowing how to proceed. The final aspect is the icing on the cake. I need to become self-aware to what is happening in me and around me. I then need to interpret what the feeling is, but emotional intelligence would have no use if not for this third and final step. Knowing you're sad or angry or fearful is really only helpful if you know how to respond. We can choose a negative response that hurts me or hurts somebody else. This is often acting on impulse. And we do this, we do this a lot because this is what gives emotions a bad name. As soon as we hear that statement, oh, they're just too emotional. Really what they're saying is you act on impulse from your emotions. Or we can choose to respond to a feeling in a healthy, productive way. We don't want to be swept away by our feelings. So with that statement, we don't want to be swept away by our feelings. Emotions require self-control. 
Jesus talks about this in the Beatitudes when he says, blessed are the meek in Matthew 5, 5. I always thought biblical meekness is weakness. I don't know why I grew up thinking that. I don't know, it rhymes, meek, weak, meek. It just felt like such a weak word. So blessed are the weak people, okay. It's not weakness, it is strength under control. So my husband likes to say it this way all the time. Meekness in Jesus is displayed as the right level of emotion at the right time. So think of those 308 emotions. None of them are sinful. What we do with them can be wrong. But it's the right level of emotion at the right time. All of those emotions we're going to experience in our lives. It's knowing what level they should be at in the right moment. So emotional health is a step beyond emotional intelligence. Emotional health is not a skill, it's a state. An emotionally healthy person uses their emotional intelligence to help guide their decision-making process. So this is what I was saying. Our hearts and our minds, or our feelings and our emotions and our thinking, they are connected. We're never gonna be able to disconnect them. They're always going to be affecting and influencing one another. So an emotional healthy person uses their emotional intelligence to help guide their thinking, their decision-making process. This leads to a more productive, enjoyable, balanced life. We get to use our head and our heart together. So what we're talking about is not easy. Human beings are the most sophisticated structure in the known universe. So paying attention to the sensations in our body and then trying to interpret them as a specific feeling is a difficult process. There is a lot going on in our bodies all at the same time. Oftentimes, one feeling can be manifested or displayed in different ways. So as you do this, you might start learning like, oh, I thought I was always gonna respond or feel this way when I was sad. You're not always going to respond and feel the same way every time you realize you're sad. Our bodies communicate that to us in different ways. Our bodies are making this complicated. It can feel chaotic. Trying to understand our emotions can feel chaotic and meaningless. But did you know that humans are actually quite good at creating order and finding meaning? These are traits that reflect our original design. So we are made in the image of God. And God in Genesis 1 took something that was formless and empty with darkness over the surface of the deep and created our infinitely detailed and orderly world. And we have been created to be co-creators with God. So we were made to create order out of chaos, even if that chaos is inside our bodies. And just our, like our earthly example of Jesus, he took the chaos of his emotions and he put them in order and he gave them meaning. Emotions enable connection. The second point of why do emotions matter? Emotions enable connection. Our culture places a high importance on independence, individualism, but humans are designed for relationships. We want to know, be known and we want to know. Emotion is the key to human connection. We communicate with other, with other people through nonverbal body language all the time, we do. But we make connection with others when we use our words. We communicate with others by sharing our emotions verbally. It's the most valuable way in which we get to know others. 
I mean, think about it. You can share the weather. You can share about sports. You can share about your job. But if you want to be known and truly know somebody, what are you going to start talking about? Your emotions. My, my day at work was hard because. Or I'm feeling a lot of this at home. This is what's going on. We share our thinking and logic, but true friendships are built around sharing our fears, failures, joys, and sorrows. Emotions enable us to relate and connect with others, but they also enable us to relate and connect with God, because God is emotional. So in scripture, we've already seen that Jesus, who is the ultimate example of human flourishing, experienced a range of emotions. We get to see in the Psalms, the songwriters pour out their emotions to God. These emotions range from fear to delight. And these songs weren't meant as private poems for personal reflection. They were Israel's hymns sung together corporately as worship. And our bodies are to be taken care of. The third point under why our emotions matter. Our bodies are to be taken care of. And that means both our minds and our hearts. We take care of our head and we take care of our thinking, our emotions. When we take care of our bodies, we are taking care of the sacred place of God. We live an embodied life. Our bodies matter. I love that we're speaking more about this. I loved when Melissa reached out and told me what you guys were preaching about. Our bodies matter. It's time to stop thinking about the fact that I'm gonna leave this body behind and go have some resurrected soul elsewhere. I'm taking this body with me. I mean, all four foot 10 of it. I've had to learn to love my height, right? We have grown to view our soul as different or separate from our body. We see our soul as the spiritual substance that lives within us and represents the real us. This is also the part of us, since it's the real us, that we'll get to live on in eternity after our body has died. But scripture does not view the human body as temporary. It does not view this as a potential holding tank. God describes the creation of our body as very good. The Hebrew word for soul is nefesh, and it is loaded with meaning. It means a living, breathing, whole person. So if we're waiting to be raised from this life in resurrected bodies, Jesus ate. He had scars from the life he lived before the resurrection. The hope of scripture is to be rescued from death, not rescued from our bodies. So that means we have to learn to like our bodies because we're going to have them for a while. That means liking our mind and liking our emotions. The biblical line of thinking that comes from the scriptures also lines up with modern neuroscience. Neuroscience continues to disprove any real separation from mind and body. They've also wrestled with this. They've also delved into it. What does it mean that we're soulful beings? Thinking and feeling cannot be cleanly separated. So there's an interconnectedness between what we're thinking and what we feel. We think with our whole body not just our brain. So what seems to be the biggest struggle in learning to identify and name our emotions and then manage them? I just gave you all this really easy stuff, right? You can walk out of here and be like, I can do this, I can, I can. no. There, there's a big struggle in learning to identify and name our emotions and then manage them. Fear of them winning or being in control. There's a fear that we will not be able to control our emotions. 
I relate feelings to a wave. I talk about the wave all the time in counseling. It's the analogy that I use. I love that it's a visual metaphor. Emotions are waves. Sometimes they come out of nowhere. (laughs) They hit us. They knock us down. But I like the metaphor and the analogy because if you've been to the ocean, you guys are like East Coast ocean people, right? So if you've been to like the West Coast where there's like waves and you can surf and no. If you think about the ocean, it always wants its water back. That's why the analogy is so fitting. Emotions hit us and they're waves and sometimes they're waves and you're like, that was fine, I did great. Or sometimes if it's a great comfortable feeling, sometimes we like the ocean and we're like, that was really comfortable, I like that. But they never stay. The The ocean always wants its water back. This tattoo, is actually about a really traumatic experience in my life in Portland. And I bring that up only because it, it was so close to when I left Portland that I got it. I remember all of the pain and angst associated with like needing to have this permanent thing on my body. I still love it, but guess what? It's just a memory. I remember it being hard. I remember it hurting. I remember the feeling of like, am I gonna sustain and survive this? but it doesn't last. I mean, think about the wonderful, wonderful, amazing, comfortable emotions that we have. I'll have emotions where I'm like driving in the car and I'm overwhelmed by how amazing my children are. Like, oh my gosh, she's the best. And I wanna hold on to that feeling forever. Do you think I'm riding that wave all the time? (laughs) One, it's about my kids, so no. But let's say it wasn't. Like even the wonderful, strong, amazing emotions that we have when our body's like, pay attention, life is good right now, you really like this. Even that feeling doesn't stay. I don't even get to hold on to that for forever. Emotions don't last. They hit us. Sometimes they knock us down. Sometimes another one comes before we even got up and we're like, am I going to be able to find air? but they never stay. So a lot of times we run away from the emotion, the wave, because we think we can't withstand it. Running away looks like a lot of different things. It can be tuning out. It is like Netflix binge watching. I keep saying that, it just hits a little too close to home. It's a great way to check out, but it's a, what we're doing is we're not wanting to stay in touch or in tune with our bodies. It can be over-exercising. It can be staying too late at work. It can be putting a million things on our plate so I never have to slow down. Running away from the wave is doing whatever we can to distance ourselves knowing I don't wanna feel that emotion. The emotion I think we run away from the most is grief and loss, and it has its own term. We actually diagnose it as complicated bereavement when we're working with someone, they're not letting themselves experience the feelings of grief and loss and they keep running away thinking it will take them under. But we don't don't drown from our emotions. We sometimes drown from the actions that we take from our emotions. So we see the wave, we feel the wave, we think it's going to take us out, crush us, we can't handle it, so we run away. I want to tell us all that we can withstand the wave because it doesn't last forever. The fear is how long will it last? That we don't always have the answer for. Sometimes the waves do last for a while. They just don't last for forever. We have to remind ourselves in those moments, in that minute that we're afraid, in that moment we're fearful of, I'm actually going to step in and let myself feel this. We have to then just mentally remind ourselves, remember, our thinking and our feeling are connected. It's the reminder that this won't last forever. It comes, it hits, it hurts, but it always gets pulled back into the ocean. 
Intense emotions are an uptick in energy. It's actually a physiological response in our body. So we also cannot stay in this heightened emotion state for too long. Our body releases chemicals called cortisol into our system with the uptick of energy. So we have to learn. We have to learn what to do with this cortisol release in our body, which is just to relax and breathe. We relax our muscles. We take slow breaths, which calm our heartbeat down, and it slows everything down and re-regulates us. And actually, that's how our body releases the cortisol. And that is called mindfulness. Practicing mindfulness is not some East Indian New Age mumbo jumbo. I, it makes me sad that it kind of got caught up in that because every time I bring up mindfulness at church, people are like, Ooh, "We don't, we don't do that." <laughs> Sorry. I mean, I like to do yoga, and they're also like, we don't do that. It just got too connected to other things, which is sad, because what I do think East Indian and New Age religions do is get you to stay in your body more. But I think the premise behind all of that is Jesus wanted us to stay in our bodies. So they just hijacked it from true humanity, which was Jesus. And when I say mindfulness, it only involves two steps, and yet it's wicked hard. It's so hard to start. It's so hard to figure out how to keep doing it, and it's so hard to continue. But mindfulness is two steps. Paying attention to my body constantly throughout the day. So when I have clients who are starting this, I do the things of like every time you get a drink of water, check in with your body. Or you can set the room. I don't have an Apple Watch, but like I've been with people where their Apple Watch reminds them to like breathe or slow down, or you can do like the mindfulness. I, Yes, stuff like that, because it's, it's so hard to start. Think about if I asked you to check in with your body four or five times a day, you would probably get to the end of your first day and been like, oh, oh, I wonder what my body felt like today. It's really hard to stop and think, what am I experiencing right now? What is that feeling? Okay. We just forget. Life's busy. We're going and going. So mindfulness, the first step is to pay attention to your body. What's going on? What's happening inside of it? And the second step is to define the emotion and just be with it. Mindfulness, the second step, they always say to practice non-judgment and acceptance. Practicing non-judgment and acceptance, again, people get uncomfortable by this because they're thinking it's very new agey. Practicing non-judgment and acceptance of emotion is what I just talked about. It's not right or wrong. It is just happening to you. We get so critical I can be like, what am I feeling right now? Oh, I'm really frustrated that I'm stuck in traffic. And then I try to not practice acceptance. And Oh, Adrian, stop. You just need to learn to be patient. Calm down. Give yourself some break. You get, I'm, I'm judging and not accepting my feeling. All I wanted to do was, oh, I'm irritated that I'm stuck in traffic. It's acceptance. What am I feeling? I'm irritated that I'm stuck in traffic. I'm not trying to fix it. I'm not trying to correct it. I'm just, oh, that's where I'm at in this moment. I can then choose to move on and go, I don't want to be irritated anymore. I am just stuck in traffic. So mindfulness, two steps. Checking in with your body. What is it trying to tell you? And then practicing acceptance and non-judgment of just saying, this is what it is. This is what I'm feeling right now. Before we close... Let's see what Jesus did in one of his hardest moments. So Matthew 26, 36 through 45. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter 
and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And so I wanted to let you know, I did not write what I'm about to say. I, I think it came from this book, Why Emotions Matter, but I couldn't find it. So in this moment, he is aware of his feelings. He becomes troubled and sorrowful. But he stays in community and asks some of his closest companions to come with him. So he is transparent, he is vulnerable, and he shares with them through words what he is feeling, the emotions that he's experiencing. They don't understand. They can understand, but he still chooses to share with them what he is experiencing. He doesn't bypass these uncomfortable feelings. He doesn't pretend they are not happening. He lets his emotions be real and he lets himself feel them. He talks through his options. He expresses a different option if he could do this another way, but he remains obedient. When he returns to his disciples and finds them sleeping, he doesn't want them to stay awake just to stay awake. He's sharing his need. He has a need. He has an emotional need his feelings with his community. He's asking for them to participate in this with him as much as they can. He continues to pray. He is self-aware of what he is feeling. He interprets those feelings and uses very specific words, and he moves forward with an action after praying on it and not reacting just from emotion. He uses his heart and his mind together. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, again, I just want to thank you for this time in this space that you created. I pray for everyone here and anyone who's also just listening to this later that, that they can take what they heard and figure out within community and with your spirit how to start some of this if they need to. I pray for that connection for all of these individuals, that connection between your heart and between your mind, that there's not a wall, that it's supposed to be cut off, Lord, that you have connected us within this body to have both of those things to use at our disposal for your good creation. Those things, Lord, bring us closer to you. They bring us closer to each other. They make us strive and thrive to be connected with one another they make us, they help us be known. They help us see you. They help you see us. 
Lord, I pray that we will find better words and better ways to communicate our emotions to ourselves and to each other. In your name we pray, amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.